Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Welcome to the More Perfect Union, the podcast that offers real debate without the hate. I'm Kevin Kelton, a moderate Democrat and honorary constitutional scholar from Santa Monica, California. <laughs> At least I feel like it this week. And I'm joined by... Greg Matuzak, a common sense liberal. And for the record, Rudy Giuliani is what we're just friends. Uh, he's <laughs> technically, I, I can't say he's my lawyer either, but, uh, he's a good guy. That's all I'm going to say from Cincinnati, Ohio. And I am Rebecca Kushmeider, a progressive feminist who just finalized my order with Penzi Spices for some delicious, <laughs> subversive, uh, activism. And I am in Kensington, Maryland. That's the spice company that's for Trump's impeachment, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I hope you got me something. I really do. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till Christmas, Greg. And I'm DJ McGuire, a conservative feminist from Suffolk, Virginia. And welcome all. So let's get right to it. There's so much in the news this week. Uh, it seems we say that every week, but Syria has reared its very ugly head. And uh, I'm going to throw to Rebecca. And ask, as a progressive who's more focused, if dare I say, on domestic issues, <laughs> how do you feel about what's going on over there? Uh, it's you know, it's it's one of these things that I've been having to climb a very high learning curve. Me too. I, I know the Bashir al Assad bad. Um, <laughs> that, that's as kind of as far as I've gotten in that, and you know, learning about our alliances with the Kurds and. You know, and, and sort of where historically we've been and the fact that we've been providing this buffer zone that has prevented other countries from going in and doing further damage in Syria. I, I didn't, I didn't realize all of that, which makes it all the more mystifying to me that Trump pulled out, you know, and it was really only 50 people at the outset and pulling that very small plug out of the dam has released this torrent of violence and and military maneuvers and I, like I, 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 I wonder if Erdogan got off that phone call with Trump and was like was it really that easy yeah like can this possibly be this easy for me to just start storming in and killing Kurds or is there going to be some blowback and there's not there's no blowback so normally at this point in the conversation, I would throw to DJ and he would give us the historical background because he's our resident expert at that. But <laughs> I really want to get more commentary from DJ this week. So DJ, if you don't mind, I'm going to start for our audience who, like Rebecca and me, were not as steeped in this issue until this weekend happened. I'm going to give just a little historical perspective and then you can come in with, with more interesting commentary. Uh, so Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to say stuff and then you're going to say something interesting. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't want to be interesting. So here I go. <laughs> so apparently after World War I, the Western powers promised the Kurds their own homeland. 
an, an agreement. I never heard of this. The Treaty of Severis. Did I pronounce that right? Severis? I think it's Sevier. Sevier. I was so far off. <laughs> I bet Jess could have pronounced that. <laughs> yes, she probably could have. I'll get uh, yelled at today. It's probably a French word. But a later agreement apparently decided to divide them among Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. Okay, so that's the, the long historical perspective. But inside its own borders, Turkey has for years tried to counter any type of Kurdish military or Kurdish expansion. So it turns out that Erdogan has wanted to go after these people forever. And Trump basically gave him the go ahead by saying those 50 uh, U.S. forces that have been positioned between you and the Kurdish fighters in Syria precisely for the purpose of keeping a buffer zone between so no military conflict breaks out. I'm going to withdraw those. He did that. Erdogan turned around and, and immediately uh, started an incursion into Syria to start attacking these Kurdish fighters. And now Trump, because he doesn't want any Americans to get involved and he wants to, he, he says, save American lives, is pulling another thousand or so uh, military troops out of the country. DJ, did I get that essentially right? Uh, fairly close. Uh, in theory, he <laughs> says, no, no, it's, it's okay. He, the, the, the cover story now is that the troops are moving out of northern Syria, northeastern Syria, but they will, uh, they will be redeployed to a small, uh, rebel held, uh, position in Al Tanf, I believe it is, which is in southern Syria. And northeastern Syria will essentially be carved up between the Syrian government, uh, and Turkey. As the Kurds basically are forced to choose between being subjugated under Bashar Assad or being exterminated uh, under Erdogan. And this is a horrific betrayal, not just of the SDF and of the of the Kurdish Syrians who are largely a force behind it, but it is a betrayal of all Syria because northeastern Syria was the potential for something great. It was the potential for an alternative Syria, a Syria without Bashar Assad, a Syria for Syrians instead of for a brutal dictatorship. We could have used that to build a democratic Syria, to help the people of Western Syria knock out the Assad regime. But that's all by the wayside now because Vladimir Putin and Bashar Assad don't want that. And as much as everyone wants to yell at Erdogan and as much as Erdogan deserves being yelled at because he is a fool and a would-be tyrant himself, the reality is the big winner of this is Putin and Assad because they essentially get much of northeastern Syria back, uh, which they would have never been able to do, but for Donald Trump handing it to them. We're actually now at the point where one of the cities, Manbij, a city that the SDF uh, won by defeating ISIS at the expense of many Kurdish lives, we are essentially handing that over to the Russians now. So if in case anybody asks, well, what, 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 what did Putin get from helping Trump? Well, he got Manbij and a bunch of other things. Oh, he, he got, got a lot North more than that. Yeah, Manbij, yeah. He got Ukraine, Northeast Syria. Stuff. Yeah. As, as, uh, as a Washington Post writer said, you know, Vladimir Putin has been, has been winning so much. He's gotten tired of winning. <laughs> yeah, I, I have one quick question, DJ. You, Go ahead. You say that Erdogan has for a long time been out to get the Kurds and, and has declared, or maybe Kevin, it was Kevin who said that Erdogan considers that the, the Kurdish, the Syrian Kurds, a terrorist organization. On what grounds does he reach that conclusion? I like what what caused that sense in Turkey. Well, the, the, there are Kurds in Turkey, right? 
Yeah, they're, 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 the, it's, it's the, the PKK are the Turkish Kurds. They are apparently linked to the YPG, which is the Syrian Kurds. And that is enough for Erdogan to say that the YPG is a problem. Now, wait, let me just jump in to, to clarify. There has been violence that it probably is some kind of terrorism because these people want autonomy, much like the Palestinians, much like the Shiites, uh, in, in Iraq before you know, Iraq was, uh, invaded. And so, yes, there has been some violence, uh, but this man is is looking to wipe the Kurds off the face of the map. Now, he will deny that, but we are a step and a half away from ethnic cleansing. Right. No, I think I think the Armenians would confirm that Turkey is pretty darn good at genocide. Um, yeah. But so so the Kurds operate sort of like the IRA. They're, they're- no, 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 no. Some Kurds, some Kurds. Yeah, the the, the Turkish Kurds and the PK, the Turkish Kurds and the P in the PKK, they have a history of terrorism. Most most Kurds in Turkey are not PKK backers. There is actually a there is a pro autonomy peaceful political party in Turkey. I believe it's called the HDP. Nor are all Syrian Kurds supportive of the YPG. Right. Let me just jump in and make an analogy here. It would be like the French saying all Muslims in our country are terrorists, or for that matter, the United States. Right. Ex- ex- exactly. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back even f- – well, maybe not even further. I remember in the first Gulf War, um, the Iraqis – Killing the Kurds after we, you know, left as victors yes. or whatever HW said happened. You mentioned the the his, their history in Iraq. I believe it was five thousand Kurds who were killed by Saddam with weapons of mass destruction, poison gas. Yes, isn't that correct? In nineteen eighty eight, eighty eight, thousands of Kurds were killed with chemical weapons. So I want to go back and say, people who are listening to this podcast, you will remember from the Iraq War how everybody talked about how Saddam has used chemical weapons against people, that it wasn't just a theoretical thing, that he's actually killed people with chemical weapons. Well, those people were 5,000 Kurds. The Kurds have been the target of this type of ethnic cleansing for a 100 years. This treaty that I referred to at the beginning of the show was initially meant to create a homeland for them. It didn't work out that way. That's why they're in the precarious world situation they're in now. And that's why, you know, Americans should care what's going on over there. And what this also says is this shows that the president of the United States is a coward. He is a coward, pure and simple. Absolutely. He cut and run. And he cut and run for no good reason. It wasn't like he did some sort of risk-benefit analysis and came up with, you know, a, a number that justified him cutting and running. He took a call from Erdogan who said, hey, it'd be great if you got your guys out of there. And he said, okay, like a total dolt. Uh, actually, that's that's actually what I was about to say. This, See, I've heard two stories on that Erdogan call. One is what everyone's kind of assuming is that Erdogan said, hey, it'd be great if you did me a solid. I'm not going to call it a favor because this is already getting him in trouble. But the second one is that Erdogan said, hey, I'm attacking. It's going to happen. I'm galling because we're tight and I'm giving you a heads up. And Trump didn't have the understanding that his 50 guys, that America's 50 guys, would keep him from attacking. That, that no one attacks American troops, whether it was 50, whether it was 500, or whether it was five, because that's a shitstorm that nobody wants. And so he goes, oh, and Erdogan said, why don't you do yourself a solid because, you know, nationalism and chances are, you know, you don't want your people hurt. 
pull him out because you you should get him out now before anyone gets hurt. And he thought he was doing like he was going to be hailed as a hero. Yeah, I think that I think that your second scenario, I think, is the more likely scenario. Right. Except what I think is Erdogan said to him, we've been talking about this forever. I've told you my determination to do this since you became president. Mr. President, I'm going in in the next 72 hours, whether your troops are there or not. I think it was a bluff, and I think Trump blinked. What he should have said was, that's funny because in the next 24 hours, I'm moving another 500 troops into that area. And right after that, I'm moving another 500 troops into that area. That's what a real president would have done. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Instead, we instead we have a coward who decided that it was better to that it was better to appease tyrants than to resist them. That it was better to appease the forces. It was better to appease malevolent forces than to stand up to them because that's what Donald Trump well, does. We have a he president appeases. who wasn't even bright enough to make a second phone call. And get somebody else's opinion on what Erdogan was doing. Well, he knows more than the generals. Who was he going to ask? He knows more than all the generals. Oh, that's true. He could have, uh, well, I was going to say he could have asked Putin, but that's not going to be helpful. You know who else he didn't ask? Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who first of all, has been suspiciously quiet about all of this, although I understand he's made a couple of statements denouncing it. Um, DJ, could this hurt his uh, ability to form a, a new coalition government? Because... He has to do that in the next, I think, 45 days. And one of his big selling points was that he is friends with Trump, and Trump has now sold the Israelis down the toilet. Yeah, I think it should. I don't know whether it will. The election is already over. Uh, the real question is, does um, um, does Lieberman uh, – uh, I forget. Avidor Lieberman, I think, is his first name – uh, does he decide that uh, that that Netanyahu was a better bet than Gantz? And I think this certainly is a sign that Netanyahu is not a better bet than Gantz. That's what uh, I mean. Yeah. So I th- I would actually say I would say it should hurt Netanyahu's ability to form a government, and I think it will hurt his ability to form a government because people will look at that and say parliamentarians will look at that and say, well, wait just a minute, you you. You basically said you're because you're in tight with Trump that he will work for our interests, and that was not working for our interests over there. So exactly. I think it will hurt it. Exactly. So now we've talked about this, we've given it a lot of coverage, but I'm sure our listeners also want to hear us talk about some domestic issues in the United States, such as the impeachment drama that's unfolding. What? <laughs> oh, Gre- Greg, you haven't heard about this? <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, apparently the, the president did something bad. So, (laughs) where do we start with this? Rudy is in the news left, right, and center. People have been testifying in secret hearings because it involves national security stuff. Yeah, start with Rudy. Okay, so so Rudy had these two friends, these two pals he was tight with, who were pretty much laundering money and creating what I guess that you'd call – a straw donor scheme. Well, they've, they've been arrested on campaign finance violations. Those are the violations. Right. The straw donor scheme is the violation. Yeah, they, they have been hit with those charges. Oh, they have. there's more coming. These guys oh, sure. were funneling. No, they they made illegal campaign contributions to Pete Sessions, the congressman mm-hmm. who they then asked to help them uh, get Marie. And Kevin McCarthy. I'm sorry? And Kevin McCarthy, the GOP House leader. 
Oh, that's news to me. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, they, they, get- yeah. No. And, and right now, people are trying are grabbing fistfuls of money and throwing it away. Like, oh, if these guys donated to me, I'm giving it to charity now. It's crazy. Yeah. A Trump a Trump pack got a third of a million dollars. Yes, the Trump pack got three hundred sixty some odd thousand dollars. But these guys over the last several years moved something around a million dollars that we mm-hmm. know of mm-hmm. into either GOP super PACs or directly into GOP campaigns. Now, the question has become, where did these two assholes get that kind of cash to throw around? And the answer is pretty obvious. It came from foreign entities, uh, and they were the conduits. They were funneling. They were money laundering. So this is going to turn really bad for those two guys. And I actually think it's going to turn really bad for Trump. I think this is going to become an article of impeachment. Well, I, you know, this was fascinating to me because, you know, hearing about, you know, the money was definitely coming from Ukrainian interest. It was probably coming from Russian interests as well. And a couple of years ago, when it, it became clear that there was Russian money circulating in Trump world, a friend of me and my husband said, you know, the, the Republicans are not going to want to investigate this because if there's Russian money in Trump coffers, there's Russian money in all their coffers. And I didn't think we'd ever actually be able to find out that was true. I figured it was it was too well buried. But apparently Trump, in addition to being bad at being president, and Rudy Giuliani, in addition to being bad at being a spokesman, are bad at finding people to launder Russian money into their political campaigns. And, you know, you only have to scratch the surface a little to find these crimes. Yeah. And let's, you know, last week we talked about the fact that uh, the uh, – that the Trump Republicans have raised $125 million so far for the 2020 election campaign. Where did that come from? And if just, if just 1 million of it came from foreign donors that should not be donating to American presidential campaigns or congressional campaigns, the GOP has a massive problem. Yeah. First of all, we know in the indictment that the that the money that was that the, that the donor the actual donor was a Russian national that's in the indictment um the Russian national is not named but i think there is a there's a there's a russian tycoon i think it was Ukraine- yakov smirnov no it was not yakov smirnov there's like- a ukrainian tycoon <laughs> yeah there's a U- there's a I ukrainian just really tycoon with ties to, Thank you. to to the russian mob <laughs> and to and to and to putin there is a uh, there is a Ukrainian tycoon with ties to the to the Russian mob and to Putin. Uh, Furtash is his last name. Uh, who it might be him? It might be somebody else. I'm not really sure. But uh, yeah, the fact of the matter is, Rudy himself, who by the way should be called Russia's mayor, is yes. uh, un- also under investigation. Uh, that shouldn't surprise anybody. By so his own the fact- former office, the office he used to head, is now yes, investigating the- him. For yes, massive international level corruption. It's my favorite thing. So on top of everything else, there should be an article of impeachment for irony. Yes. Yes. Actually, you know what? There should be a presidential medal for irony. Like when Ed Meese <laughs> got the presidential medal of freedom, there should be a presidential right. medal of irony to be handed out as well. Not to Ed Meese, though he sucks. Although that iron although that irony medal should might actually go to the departing acting secretary for homeland security who said he's leaving his post because he's he wants to spend more time with his family the dhs acting head is leaving because he's upset about being separated from his family you should see the hand gestures i look like an angry drag queen right now i'm so like that yeah dj as you've often said to me and now i'm saying it back to you salute my friend salute <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I want to ask you guys, first of all, does everyone here believe that it's very, very likely that the, the House will pass articles of impeachment? Oh, absolutely. Are we all kind of on board for that? Yes. Because the crimes are quite obvious. They're all but confessed to. He has nearly signed a statement. There is plenty to impeach him on. The man committed crimes. He can be indicted on those crimes. Simple as that. The, the, the best statement comes from Brian McGrath, who is a former naval officer. He's a defense consultant now. He was on the, the bull, the, he was on the Bulwark podcast this morning. And he said, look, the quid, forget the quid, forget the pro quo part. The quid is enough. The fact that he asked other countries to interfere in our electoral process, that in and of itself is impeachable. And he has admitted to that and he did it publicly in a, in a, one of those chopper press conferences before he went on Marine One. He has already committed impeachable offenses out in the open for everyone to see. Good point. Good point. So there's going to be a trial in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has essentially said we would have to take this up. No one quite knows how McConnell will go about this. We just know that he'll do everything he can to uh, affect it in Trump's favor. That said, there's going to be some type of trial of some kind Chief Justice John Roberts is going to be sitting up there running things. So I throw it to you guys. What do you think an impeachment trial in the Senate will look like? Um, th- there's a town called Salem. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, what McConnell will do is limit the time allowed for the matter. He will create a Senate rule that gives it, I don't know, four or six hours for evidence to be produced and, and any debate to be held. And then there will be an up or down vote. It it will be something so brief that, you know, if you blink, uh, you'll miss it on C-SPAN. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I did a little research today because I knew I was going to ask this question. So I went back and did a little research to brush up on my recent American history about what happened during the Bill Clinton impeachment trial in the Senate. First of all, the question was, would witnesses be called? There was some back and forth on that. They finally decided to depose, not live testimony, three witnesses. I believe they were uh, Monica Lewinsky, Vernon Jordan, and I think uh, Betty, and I'm blanking on her last name, but the president's uh, personal secretary. Curry, Betty Curry. Betty Curry, yeah. I How think on those earth were the three people. I remember that one. Wow. We yeah. ask you that every week, DJ. <sighs> Yes. <laughs> and um first of all, the House hearings to determine whether or not to impeach President Clinton took two months from the vote to start the inquiry to the actual vote on articles of impeachment. The Senate trial lasted five weeks. There were three witnesses on videotape giving depositions. Then, of course, it's done like a trial where there's opening statements made by the House managers that we, of course, have explained on previous episodes here. They're essentially uh, representatives uh, from Congress who act as the prosecutors. They normally have a prosecutorial background. That's why they're chosen. A case is made. There are lawyers from both sides. The Democrats will have lawyers making their case. And President Trump will have his own appointed attorneys defending him with the right to cross-examine witnesses and present their own defense. Uh, at some point, it becomes just like any other Senate session where the senators get up and make speeches telling their, you know, the logic of their votes. Then they have some type of a closed hearing where they actually do the vote and then they announce the vote. 
It turns out, just to refresh your memories, it was a 45 to 55 vote against conviction on perjury and a 50-50 split on obstruction of justice. So there was never a majority vote against Bill Clinton. Now, my sense is this is going to be somewhat different. First of all, I do believe that McConnell will try to jigger the whole thing to handcuff the Democrats, keep them from making their entire case. I think there'll be a lot of yelling and screaming about rules and procedures. And ultimately, Trump most likely is not going to be convicted and removed from office. But I've made this point on the show. I'm going to make it every week until I start hearing it in the national media because I think it's true and I think it's valid. And I'm amazed that I seem to be the only person in America who is making this point. Democrats would love to remove him from office, but we don't need 67 votes to destroy his chances for re-election. If only a handful of GOP senators break away and vote against him, if you get 53 or 55 or 58 votes in the Senate to convict him, man, that will be damning in and of itself. What Mitch McConnell will probably try to do is, my guess is here, is that he will he will let the House managers present their case. And then as soon as that is done, he will make a motion for dismissal. And then yes. if he can get 51 votes for, if he can get 51 votes for dismissal, then that's it. The game is over. The question is, can he actually get 51 votes for dismissal? Now he can lose Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and still get 51 votes for dismissal. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. We, we, I would, we honestly don't know. But I would probably guess Mitch McConnell would think to himself, I don't want to risk Donald Trump saying something stupid. I would much rather get this dismissed as soon as the managers finish their case. That's what I suspect will happen. I think Mitch McConnell will get to 51 votes. And what will happen is the case will, the impeachment case will be dismissed in the Senate almost as soon as the managers are finished stating their case. DJ, I think you're right. That was really good. I think that's that's spot on. <laughs> Are you going to put that on a loop at the end of the show? Like you yes, DJ, DJ, I, you think right. <laughs> DJ I think you're right. DJ, I think you're right. DJ, I think you're right. It's going to be his new ringtone. Okay, now let's talk. That was a great commercial. (laughs) Really? Those products and services are so exciting. Everybody should jump on those deals. Yes. Exactly. Go buy insert sponsor here. (laughs) Consumerism is awesome. (laughs) Penzies, call us. (laughs) So we have a debate coming up uh, later today by the time this podcast hits the uh, proverbial airwaves or whatever waves it is that this thing goes out on. Um, It's going to be debate number four. It's going to have probably 12 participants. Uh, Tom Steyer making his first appearance on the mound for the Democrats. Um, So what are you guys looking for or what, or do you even care anymore? No, I think I'm driving (laughs) carpool during the debate. I'm always driving carpool. My whole life is carpool. There's nothing but carpool. Greg, do you think that foreign policy, now that this whole Syria thing is going on, do you think that that's going to be a ma- – it's going to be a major topic, right? They're going to be asked is. about it. Do you think this plays to Biden's strong suit? Do you think that in any way helps him? 
Yeah, usually it would. But unfortunately, when Biden is confronted on his turf, he gets really upset and he gets indignant. Like, excuse me, do you, do you know who I am? Well, where I was going with this is I, I think that he is unknowingly going to suck his opponents into a trap because <laughs> here's what's going to happen. Okay. Someone is going to bring up that this is an outgrowth of Obama's foreign policy in Syria. And when Democrats have hurt themselves is when they've been pulled into the trap of trying to shame the Obama administration for policies that, for whatever reason, didn't work out properly. If they try that again in a debate, we saw how badly that worked in, this. I think, the second debate for uh, Cory Booker and maybe even Julian Castro. They were trying to vilify the Obama administration, and Democrats do not like that. And if that happens again in this debate, I think that redounds to the vice president's favor. First of all, no Democrat, no Democrat on this stage is actually going to do that because while I do think Barack Obama deserves some blame for what is happening in Syria, none of the Democrats running for president agree with me on that, so they're not going to bring that up. What is going to happen is because of Elizabeth Warren's rise in the polls – uh, Tulsi Gabbard is going to do what Bashar Assad tells her to do and beat the hell out of the front runner. And they think that's Warren. So Tulsi Gabbard is going to blast Elizabeth Warren, uh, and everybody else on that stage. Because again, that's what Bashar Assad wants her to do. She's a Bathist, not a Democrat. Yeah, but, but she will last right until she opens her mouth and then somebody turns around and says, you're the one that was for, you know, Bashar al-Assad. Yeah, right. Uh, look, the- look at where we are now. Uh, if you were the president, this would be a pure debacle. Right. Gab- Gabbard-, Gabbard is going to win over the Russian bot constituency and nobody else. But the point is, the point is, the fire will be aimed at Elizabeth Warren. We'll see how well she handles it. But Joe Biden is probably going to have a relatively uneventful night because for once, he will not necessarily be the target. Warren will is more likely to be the target than Biden in this case. Biden may end up flubbing stuff that's thrown at him. I'm not sure. But the story will be, how does Warren handle incoming fire? And we'll see the answer when she gets up there. Oh, you know, Biden shines when he's not in the spotlight. <laughs> that, like, talk about damning with faint praise. That defines. <laughs> that, is, that, that is good enough to be a meme. Biden shines when he's not in the spotlight. But it is true when he's just standing there and all the shitstorm is flying around him and it's not directed at him. Everyone's like, boy, he looks really good. Right, you know right, what? Can any right. of us look at Joe Biden now and not think of Woody Harrelson with those really bright white right. fake teeth? You're right. Oh, my goodness. As, 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 as hilarious as Greg's comment is, not only is it true. Yes. But yes it's, that's my ringtone. It's <laughs> It's Biden's campaign message. Biden's message is literally, vote for me, I'm not him. That's his entire (laughs) message. It's a strong message in 2019. (laughs) By the way, DJ, you mentioned Russian bots before, and I wanted to thank you for a little plug for Open Fire. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The home of Russian bots all over Facebook. Now, um, Bernie, of course, this is going to be his return to the campaign trail after his heart attack. Obviously, the world is going to be looking at Bernie. And uh, my question to you is, is this going to be his judgment day for better or for worse? Well, let's not say that. 
I didn't mean Judgment Day like meeting his maker. Well, no, Bernie just <laughs> – Bernie, Bernie's trying to deflect away from all that. He's just created um, a new – an idea for a new mandate where corporate profits have to be turned over to employees. And I think he's going to be talking entirely about that if given the opportunity to do so. You know, he, dro- he dropped a big plan to try and out Warren Warren. By the way, let's talk about that. Now, I haven't read his plan yet, so I I, I will – I will preface this by saying I'm talking out of pure ignorance. <laughs> oh, so am I. I haven't, read, I haven't read anything Bernie Sanders has written in decades. But I read about that proposal. And and based on, on just that, I got to say, what is he smoking? You cannot <laughs> mandate how private corporations divvy up their revenues and profits. You cannot mandate that in the United States. You kind of can. So how is he going to pass that? Yeah, no, there's some of that in the, in the ACA, actually. The, 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 what is it? The, um, uh, the, the premium loss, uh, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the medical loss ratio. The medical loss ratio. Yeah, like they have, they have to, to spend a certain amount of premium dollars. So y- you can control that to a certain degree. Um, probably not the way Bernie would like it to be done. Um, and it's, it, you know, he's, he's trying to sort of create unions where unions don't exist. Um, right. But it, I, I don't know. It sounds a little ham-handed to me. Today, today's campaign, today's campaign mandate idea is tomorrow's governing tax loophole. So that's something to consider <laughs> as we move forward. No, I'm not kidding. But no, the, no, the real, the real, yeah, the, the the real question for for Bernie Sanders as he try as he tries to muscle in on Elizabeth Warren's situation uh, is whether or not. Uh, his sort of views, uh, can circulate within the Democratic Party, uh, whether or not he can get to the, to the arteries of support that he needs, <laughs> um, and, and, and whether or not his views will lead the established, the Democratic establishment to skip a beat or even get their <laughs> to stop. Oh, I love that. You really clogged up that, uh, flow with- <laughs> With the uh, imagery there, DJ. I think the heart attack may, just may, actually work to Bernie's favor because I do think that all eyes are going to be on him tomorrow to say, what's he looking like? What's he sounding like? Is he up to the job? But I also think that any 78-year-old man who has, who is recovering from a recent heart attack has to modify his his energy level, especially someone who operates at the ultra high energy that Bernie Sanders does when he's making a public speech. Right. He, we have to see. We have to see whether he can keep up the pacemaker. Uh, keep up the pace uh, of the campaign. <laughs> All we know for Touché. certain is that Larry David will be taking frantic notes. Yes. So, so what we are going with this is, I think that Bernie is actually going to be more subdued tomorrow than he's been in the last three debates. I think that's actually going to help him because I think he was too over the top in the first three debates. He may now sound like a very sane, rational candidate. Um, you know, I have said this before that Bernie Sanders does not want to drop out. I, I think it's his, his fear of not losing his relevancy. He wants to, you know, be that guy who has some right. influence. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, with another progressive in the room, it's it's not a fear of uh, like the progressive ideas aren't getting into the Democratic platform this year because they are, and you know he can sleep soundly knowing these things, but he just wants to 
have a seat at the table. If he drops out now, you know, he's not a Democrat even. You know, he's not getting that seat at no, the table. No, I, I think that you have a point. I think the reason that he hasn't dropped out and probably won't drop out until as late as he can stay in is exactly for the reason that you said, Greg. I think Greg. that Sanders wants to amass as many delegates as he can so that yeah. when this goes to the convention, first of all, he may be a, he may be a kingmaker by being able to throw his support, let's say, behind an Elizabeth Warren, and that might put her over the top against someone like Joe Biden. And he also wants to be able to affect the platform. And he also wants to, you, you nailed it. This man wants relevance. And if he walks away now, he'll be a relic, not relevant. He'll be a trivia pursuit question. <laughs> okay. So let's go on to non Trump topics. Uh, if there is such a thing in this universe, uh, AOC, whose name no one can now fully pronounce. Uh, apparently got a very expensive haircut this week and then spent her birthday in Denmark, in Denmark, which Fox News labeled as a knock at the United States, that she actually spent her, her birthday in another country and then spoke well of it. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, she, she, she praised a NATO ally. The horror, <laughs> the horror. And and first of all, how bad could that be? Because we just tried to buy Denmark, didn't we? No, we just we tried to buy Greenland. Yeah, right. All right, let's talk about the haircut thing first. Okay. okay? I usually spend about seven dollars on my haircut, which is fine. And you look very okay? pretty, Greg. <laughs> Point being, I asked my wife. I asked my wife how much she pays for her haircuts. Okay, and a cut and a color, which is what AOC got. Right. And then she said $150. And that's Cincinnati money. And Cincinnati, and we're cheap as hell here in Cincinnati. And I said, well, what's the most you've ever spent? She said, I don't know, maybe 300. And, and she goes, and that's not really uncommon. So for her to spend $300 in Washington, DC. Oh, yeah. That's about right. Yeah, no, I, I spent, last time I got highlights, it was well over $300. And that was in the suburbs. That wasn't even at a GC salon, and I did not get a cut. That was just color. My haircuts cost about $100. Um, but here's here's the thing to remember when you think about pricing on services like like spa services and salon services. Every single hairdresser in D.C. lives in D.C. They have to pay D.C. rent and D.C. car insurance and D.C. parking fees. Their prices reflect their cost of living. So I don't I don't begrudge them the money that they're earning because they they have to pay the same price as I have to pay. But actually their haircuts are probably cheaper because they can get a friend to do it. But yeah, no like and also it's not like AOC was spending campaign funds on this. This was money she was spending out of her own pocket and you know like Sarah Huckabee Sanders went to Red Hen, which is not a cheap restaurant and nobody got mad at her for buying an expensive dinner. It's, it's stupid. Well, let me just let me just button this this subject up with this. Uh, it's reported that Hillary Clinton once got a six hundred dollar haircut uh, from the John Barrett salon by somebody named John Barrett. So I would say that Democrats are showing fiscal restraint with the AOC haircut. <laughs> well, I mean, it, like going we're, we're blonde going right is expensive. Hil <laughs> what Hillary needs to do to maintain her color is is not easy. You know, all AOC wanted <laughs> was a couple of lowlights in there. She's right. So it's a it, it's a single process. Uh, speaking as somebody who may or may not have dyed her hair recently. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to – the other thing that's going on with AOC is she's got a primary contender and I'm like – my feminist 
alarm bells are screaming about this because okay it's fine somebody's using her playbook come out you know come after what you see as a, a candidate who's not actually serving your district district appropriately but the problem is the guy who is primarying her doesn't live in her district he lives in a district of uh, another democrat who's a man um Espiat is his last name. And instead of primarying that guy in his sudden desire to serve the Bronx, he's primarying AOC. And it feels like a guy trying to knock down a woman. And I hate it. Even if that's not his intent, I hate it. You know, I I agree with you. But I got to say, if I was AOC, I would not be worried. Anybody who's wasting money running against her in a primary in 2020, you might as well throw that money at giving John Delaney a haircut because <laughs> it, it's just – it's that is money Not John down Delaney. the it's proverbial giving Cory Booker a haircut, Kev. <laughs> okay. Yes, I, I, I should have been fair to all peoples. Um, finally, uh, speaking of getting haircuts, Fox got a haircut this week by letting uh, Shep Smith loose. Um, now <laughs> – I don't know what what's to say about this, except I love Shepard Shepherd Smith. Uh, I hope that he goes to CNN or MSNBC, but I don't think that this was any great stand in journalistic ethics. I think that his bosses went to him and said, Shep, this is going down one of two ways because nobody wants to hear anymore. You either resign and we pay off your contract in full. You get all the money that you would have made without working and you just stay off the air while you're under contract, or you don't, and you'll be fired in 24 hours. So everybody made a big deal out of, you know, what a grand statement he made by resigning. I think he just took the money and ran. Well, what's so gross about it is that Bill Barr was meeting with Rupert Murdoch like within 48 hours of the whole thing going down. That's what's disgusting. And it turns out that Trump was also calling the president of Fox, whoever that is now, Satan or whoever, um, and, and bitching about the network. So I, mean, I, I wonder where the transcripts of those calls are hidden. Yeah, you, <laughs> you don't want to know. That's ugly information. Um, Look, wet, 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 whether or not – whether or not the Fox Corporation responded to the administration with all the bravery of the National Basketball Association vis-a-vis Communist China is not the point here. The point Ooh, is – sick burn. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the point is, for whatever reason, <laughs> Shepard Smith has decided that he would rather go somebody else, go somewhere else. That's good for him, and it's bad for everyone watching Fox News because they will now be, th- be even more thoroughly swarmed into the administration propaganda network. That is unfortunate, especially because it means more time for whatever the hell Lou Dobbs' haircut is. I remember when he actually had less gray hair. I don't know what the hell is on his head now, but he it's probably smarter. AOC's lady. It's, you know, yeah, what, whatever is on Lou Dobbs' head, it is probably smarter than what's in his head. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we want to thank everybody for listening. If you enjoy what we do here, please follow us on Twitter at hashtag MPU Podcast and on Instagram at MPU Fan Club. And also check out our website, MPUPodcast.com. And please share our link on your Facebook timeline so your friends can discover our podcast as well. So, guys, uh, going into the debate, first of all, I'm going to be serving sweet and sour Swedish meatballs, which I know is a contradiction, but that's what I call them. 
Yeah, I would like to say I'm going to eat something healthy, but y- y- you know I'm not. You know, it's it's probably going to be bait nachos, as usual. Okay, and Rebecca, you're going to be probably pulling into a drive-thru. No, but no, it'll probably be Taco Tuesday here. You know, it's Taco Tuesday. I thought you I, th- I thought you're doing driving. It's Taco Tuesday, Kevin. Don't fight me on this. <laughs> <laughs> Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.